0: Welcome to the Grace Harbor Church Sermon Podcast. Grace Harbor Church is located in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information, visit our website at ghokc.com. All right, good morning. Today's text is from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to be loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, "Begone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is
1: the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we would you give us the grace to just see you, to know you, to get past even some of the things that we know about it, some of the things that we're familiar with about it allow us to hear you freshly. Um, Would you, because we sit in this text this morning, would you deepen our love for you, strengthen our resolve against all that is not of you? Would you um, help our understanding of who you are and how you operate and why you are so for us? Father, I just pray that we would be able to sit into this and become more like you as a result here this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so do me a favor. Take your Bibles, hold your place there in Matthew chapter 4, and I want you to take your ribbon or something, if you got something there, um, and put a marker in Hebrews chapter 2, okay? We're going to go into both of those, those kind of, um, one interprets the other, very good, use your name tag, very good. You notice I'm sitting, i got a stool, there are two things involved in this, number one is I want to feel like a professor. Okay, that's why I have the stool. I don't know if professors really went to a stool. I dropped out of seminary. I didn't go to college, so there you go. Right. Uh, the other thing is I'm trying to slow down. Trying to slow down. The orthopedic said, preaching is bad for your knees. She didn't really say that. What she said was, white men can't jump. To which I responded with some quick Beyonce and said, you must not know about me. You must not know about me. So you will notice the difference between Pastor Nathan and I is his cultural references are quite different than mine. Okay, He referenced Hamilton last week, and I was going, what kind of man references Hamilton? And I look over at my sons, and they're just eating it up. And I'm like, what kind of men did I raise, right? No, I'm just kidding. If you love Hamilton, hey, there is forgiveness for you in the presence of the Lord. I'm just kidding, Right? It's really important. Uh, sometimes I get going really fast. If you, if you've ever sit in on my preaching and teaching, that's kind of one of the things that, that kind of characterizes. It. And I, I really think sometimes that's good. Sometimes it can be, you can miss what's really there though, because we're going so fast. And I think that's really important in Matthew chapter four. Okay. There are some things in here that are so incredibly important for us to understand. Um, There are layers upon layers upon layers of truth contained in these 11 verses that we have just read. We actually were talking about this, um, the layers that were involved in this in in our Wednesday morning study group. I like to think of layers like the 23 layer cake that I ate at the Michael Jordan Steakhouse in Chicago when I went. That's what I think about when I think about layers. The men in our study group, the grown men in our study group, let me just say that one more time for you, the grown men in our study group, when they thought about layers, thought about the movie Shrek. So I don't know what we're supposed to say about that and how ogres are like onions and they have many, many, many layers. I had to go watch the video clip just to know what the grown men in our church were talking about. So just want you to know there are layers upon layers in this text and one of the things that if, you're in, if you've are if you been in church at all in your life, right? So you've spent any time in Sunday school, you're probably at least somewhat familiar with what happens in Matthew chapter four. And you probably got some pictures of Jesus out in the wilderness on the flannel board. Some of you are too young for what flannel boards are, but that was long before screens. And that's when everything was beautiful and great. And you guys messed it all up. I'm just kidding. And so you probably got some pictures here. And sometimes that familiarity can keep you from seeing what's really going on. Okay, so what I want to do is I want to walk through this text and then I want to hit some of these implications We're not going to be able to hit all the layers. Okay And if you love talking about all the layers that are going on here Hey, listen, I love doing that too. I also love coffee So if you buy me coffee, we'll go sit down and we'll talk about all the layers that are contained in here And we'll save that for a space that's a little bit more convenient for it And we'll just try to hit the really really relevant and practical stuff for us as we go through this today Okay, so Take a deep breath. Let's start in verse number one, right? Good place to start. Notice the word then, okay? Chapter 4, verse number one, starts with the word then. That's important. That's not accidental. It's meant to tie us to what happens in chapter three. Okay, so everything that is now about to happen in chapter four is directly related to what happened in chapter three, namely the baptism of Jesus. And for all that there is in that, if you want to hear more about that, you can go back and listen to Pastor Nathan's sermon on that last week. I thought he did a phenomenal job of sticking with what we do know about that, and even though there's a lot of things in there that we don't know about that, and so... He hit that very well, but what we're supposed to, at least one of the things we're supposed to understand about the baptism of Jesus is this, is that it kicked his life and his public ministry into high gear, okay? So before Matthew chapter 3, we don't know a whole lot about Jesus. We know that he was born. We get a lot of details about his birth. But we don't have a lot of uh, teaching about what his childhood was like and what his youth was like and what he's, how he's being raised and all of these things, right? There are some pieces of his life that we just don't get. He's kind of living a behind-the-scenes life for most of his uh, childhood and adolescent years, right? What happens in Matthew chapter 3 when Jesus gets baptized is that all of this now gets pushed directly to the forefront. Okay, Jesus is no longer lurking in the shadows. There's no longer these rumors and this gossip about what's going on and this message about possibly the king is here. All of this is now pushed right up to the forefront now. And Jesus is center stage for everybody to see, everybody to criticize. Who? And here's the real truth. They can either believe him or they can reject him. And he won't force either. But Jesus is now put to the forefront. All of his life is now firmly on display. And in chapter 3, we end with this great affirmation from heaven. Listen to verse number 17. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Before he ever does a miracle, before he ever heals anybody, before he ever does anything good, this is the father saying, that's my son, and I am pleased with him, not on the basis of what he does, but simply on the basis of who he is. Sit in that for a minute, family. Sit in that for a minute. And then, as he is affirmed by heaven in chapter three, as soon as we get into chapter four, he is attacked by hell. In just a few words, the whole scene changes. I mean, if you kind of, it's kind of hard for, but you gotta use your imagination and you gotta put yourself there at the scene of Jesus' baptism and the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove. This was a huge day. This was incredible. This had to be highlight moment, right? This had to be just this incredible moment of feeling the Father's love poured out upon him in the Spirit's presence and dwelling him. Now this had to be this incredible moment for Jesus and then almost immediately he is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. The dry, the arid, the empty, the barren wilderness. Notice the wording of verse number one. Then Jesus was led up by who? The Spirit. So this is not accidental. This is not Jesus looking for a fight with the devil. This is part of the Father's plan. And the Spirit of God now leads the Son of God into the wilderness to what? To be tempted by the devil. There is a specific purpose, a specific aim. Here he is led by the Spirit, meaning that this is no accident, that every step of the next few verses is part of the divine plan. His good and gracious Father is leading him into this battle. And as hard as that may be to wrap our minds around, the fact of the matter is this, is that he is led by God. This is part of his Father's plan to take on the devil, mano a mano, head to head, let's do this. Okay? Okay? Notice that he is to be tempted by who in verse number one? The devil, not the devil's minions. Not demons. Like this is the real deal holy field, right? I mean, this is who we're talking about. Satan doesn't send his army to mess with Jesus. Jesus is of the sort that if anybody's ever going to trip Jesus up, it is going to have to take the head of evil itself. Evil incarnate. I would love to spend some time talking about the reality of Satan and evil in this world and how the world can't describe and explain evil. We've got some good starts, but we can't explain just the reality of evil. In Jesus's mind and understanding of reality, there is a source behind all evil. The evil out there, and listen, the evil in here. Shake your heads with me. And the source behind all of that evil is a very real evil one called Satan. Okay? And so here in the desert, the son is led by the spirit to do the will of the Father, and to battle, and he goes in quiet submission. He is led by the Spirit, and there is no hesitation. There is no resistance. There is none of that. There is Jesus humbly submitting himself to the leadership of the Holy Spirit, to the will of the Father, to be tempted by the devil. Now, if you read these, some of these temptations don't seem all that great. I mean, they're, they're really not that tempting, right? Right? takes them up to the top of the pinnacle of the temple and says, throw yourself, that's like taking me to out on a boat, which I would never get on a boat. But that's like taking me to a boat and saying, hey, jump in and see if God saves you. I'm not doing that. To me, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Not doing it, right? Just doesn't make any sense. These temptations, however, you kind of have to put your mind here, okay? These are real. These are pressing. This is not some pretend temptation. This is not some pretend man. This is a real intense battle, and you will see this as it unfolds. Notice verse number two. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights... If you're any kind of Baptist denomination, you don't believe in fasting, so we'll kind of speed right over that, right? So he's fasting 40 days. He has spent 40 days abstaining from eating and getting his flesh and bringing his body in tune with his spirit. But notice that it is as soon as he was hungry, it says in verse 2, that the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So you kind of have to understand that the timing here is really, really important. The way Mark phrases this temptation experience, it looks like Jesus was not just tempted three times, but that he was tempted the full 40 days, okay? And that these three, perhaps they are the uh, crowning temptations or perhaps they're the summary of all of these temptations. But what we understand is Jesus has spent 40 days in battle. His flesh is now at its weakest point. He is in the desert where nobody else is. He is alone. Nobody is there to walk with him. Nobody is there to stand with him. Nobody is there to hold him up when he feels like failing. He is on his own, isolated and alone. And he is here, hungry, intentionally hungry, starving, And perhaps his flesh is at its weakest, and we are to understand this, that the enemy here is taking full advantage in this incredibly vulnerable moment of the Savior. He is in the desert alone, no one to walk with, his flesh is weak, the environment is hostile, the enemy is cunning and wise, and he is extremely good at what he does. And we are to understand that in this scenario, the enemy has given every possible human advantage to win this battle. So think back to the Garden of Eden. Okay, we have to do this. Were there bets stay on how long I would stay on that stool? There probably were, weren't? Right? Who won? Um, okay, think back to the Garden of Eden, right? Everything was perfect, right? Paradise. And when everything is perfect, humanity is tempted, even though everything is perfect. They're tempted and they give in. Jesus goes to the other extreme, and nothing is perfect. He's in the desert. He's in the wilderness. He's alone. He's hungry. His flesh is weak. He has absolutely no human advantage, and he whoops the enemy's tail. Can we say that in church? We can say that in church, right? I mean, this is a real battle, okay? And so whereas in the garden, you have every possible opportunity to succeed, and they fail. In the desert, he has every reason to fail, and he succeeds, So hold on to that, right? This is important. This is very important. We multiply that when we understand that Jesus is perfectly holy. Just the presence of evil alone in the presence of absolute holiness would be impossible for us to wrap our minds around. So where are my freckled-skinned people? Any freckled people in the house? My boys are like, I'm scared to say, okay. Okay. So, I am freckled to my core. It is part of my DNA. I really, I don't suntan. I was hoping that one day, the older I'd get, all my freckles would grow together and I would look tan. But it doesn't really work that way, right, right? Okay. If I get more freckles, you won't notice. Okay? Because I already have so many. Now, if you are of the fairer skin and you do not have any freckles, what happens when you get one? Everybody sees it, right? Right? Because of the clear skin, it shows up because it's up against something that contrasts it, right? Not so for me with my freckles. I had 13 new ones when I woke up today, and you didn't even know, okay? So here's the reality, right? For us, evil is common life. I mean, we see it. I got mad in the parking lot at Crest on the way to church this morning. Evil is not new to me. I mean, it's in my veins, right? It's all around me. It's in everything I do. And so, but we have to understand that Jesus, this isn't his life in eternity from eternity past to eternity future. He is living in absolute holiness and he wraps himself in human flesh that is pierceable, that is woundable, that is beatable, that is rejectable, that is temptable. And so in this moment when evil comes, doesn't it seem just as easy for him to do away with it altogether at once? Why even fight if you don't have to fight? Why battle if you don't have to battle? Why not put an end to evil right then? Being tempted in and of itself is for Jesus an extreme experience that beyond his humanity, he does not know. And he submits himself to this for us. Hard to wrap our minds around, but he takes on this human form, this nature. And notice what the enemy asks him to do. He doesn't ask him to do anything sinister He doesn't ask him to murder anybody. He doesn't ask him to create luxury and a life of wealth. He says, feed yourself. You're hungry. So follow the line of thought. This isn't really this kind of ridiculous temptation. As a matter of fact, Jesus is going to feed many people pretty soon, right? He's going to feed 5,000 above 5,000 with two loaves, five fish, five loaves, two fish. Who eats fish anyway, right? People over there. Okay, I get it, right. Okay, so... The reality is here is that Jesus is going to use his power to feed people. And Satan says, use your power to feed you. Please sit in this for just a moment. Jesus refuses to use his divine power to meet his human needs. But he will use his divine power to meet the needs of others. There's this self-renouncing that happens in Jesus's life that is beyond beautiful. Okay? Okay. So, what's Satan tempting him with? He's tempting a hungry man to be just a typical God. What do you know what I mean by that? He can turn these stones into bread. Not only can he, but he should. He's hungry. Of all the people that should not be hungry, the son in whom he is well-pleased should not be hungry. If he is well-pleased with you, Jesus, if he does love you, Jesus, if he does care for you, Jesus, if he is for you, Jesus, if the father is truly on your side, Jesus, then you of all people should be the last person to be hungry. If he really cares for you, you wouldn't be hungry. And so now watch this. It's not about bread. It's about trusting his father. It's about depending upon his father. And so in all of these temptations, this is what is happening. The goodness and the faithfulness of the father is called into question. Can you trust him? If you can trust him, then why are you hungry? You can actually do something about it. And so Satan, all he's doing is acting, asking and inviting Jesus to be exactly what Jesus can be. He's inviting him to be God, to do God's stuff. And instead, Jesus chooses to be man. He chooses instead to trust his father, that his father could help and would sustain his life by something other than food if ne- necessary. That he chooses to believe that obedience and dependence are better than bread itself. He refuses to meet legitimate needs in illegitimate ways. Hunger's a real need, right? If we preach too long, some of you passed that point, right? I think somebody said it, we won't say who, but he said, well, you get hangry, right? Everybody knows what hangry is? Right, Some of you get devilish. we don't got to give you some sugar or some food or something, or you'll bite a limb off, right? Jesus has grace for you. We may not, but right? So Jesus is at this point, and he's hungry, and the reality is that this enemy hits him right at this opportune time, and he says, listen, if you are really God, then why in the world are you hungry? You don't have to be. Jesus responds with Scripture. You should note this. Jesus responds in all three temptations. With scripture, he says, man shall not live by bread alone. There's something more important to your life than being fed. And that is every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Well, beaten once, Satan refuses to get up because if he is anything, he is persistent and he will certainly try another way if one way fails. And so notice that when he comes down to verse number five, the devil uses the same tool to tempt Jesus that Jesus used, it, used to resist temptation. Then the devil took him up on the holy city, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. It is also written that on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So here's what Satan does. Satan quotes Scripture. Please do not miss this. Our enemy knows the book. Okay? He knows the book, and he uses this tool. And we have to learn from this that he will even use this book to our own destruction. I think this is scary for some people, but I think we have to understand good things can be perverted. Good things can be perverted. And Satan quotes scripture and he quotes it out of context and he leaves some things off and he assumes and assumes some things that aren't there and he makes the text say what the text was never intended to say. Please understand me, there is wave after wave after wave of this and it has been historically since this book was created that there is always this temptation to make this thing say what it does not say. To twist it to my own ends, and Satan invites. By the way, I will call Satan Stand today because apparently my finger left out an A when I was typing. Okay, so we just want to call him Stand from now on, right? We'll call him Stand. Okay, he uses Scripture and he and he tries to tempt Jesus in this. And this time, he encourages Jesus to presume upon the Father's care. Okay, if you do trust him, let's see if you can really trust him. He promised you this. Put that promise to the test. Make him prove beyond a shadow of a doubt. Wouldn't that be nice? Can we just get real honest for a minute? Wouldn't it be really nice if he just proved it all right now beyond a shadow of a doubt? This faith thing isn't easy. We okay to say that here? Sometimes I just wish he would override my ability to decide. Because my ability to decide has messed me up more than enough times. I want full proof evidence that this is real. And Jesus invites, or Satan invites Jesus to this and says, hey man, listen, prove it. He says he cares for it's written in the book that he cares for you prove it beyond all shadow of doubt and i don't know if this is intended or not but at the temple would have been where the religious leaders would have been right and they're the ones who crucify him and reject him and what if he casts himself down and the angels do bear him up and he doesn't get harmed in any way is that enough evidence for the religious leaders to believe and turn to him and not crucify him Instead, he says, no, we're not supposed to tempt our God. And again, he quotes scripture and he quotes it rightfully. But this, here's what you need to know. He, what Satan is tempting him to looks like trust, but it isn't trust. It's self will disguised as trust. OK, so Jesus uses. Scripture accurately to combat the lies of the enemy, to strengthen his faith in the Father. Satan's still not done. We come down here to verse number seven. Um, Sorry, verse number eight. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world, all of their glory. Notice Jesus doesn't argue whether or not those are his to give. Maybe there is some truth to this. We, Jesus will call him the prince of this world. They will call him the ruler of the world. They will say that he is over this world, the sway of the evil one in First John. And so there is something here about that. But this is the biggest temptation yet. No more subtlety in Satan's terminology. He doesn't try to trick Jesus. He just said, hey, listen, I will give you all of these if you'll fall down and worship me. This is what he really wants in all of this. Satan wants to be worshiped. And if Jesus worships him him in this moment, then that's all he wants. And the kingdoms of this world do not matter. And so why in the world would this? Listen, Jesus has promised the kingdoms of the world. They're going to be his. You know what it says in Revelation? That the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Christ. So if in some instance they weren't, they are going to be his at the end of all of this. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. It will submit to his final authority. Okay, But in the meantime, Satan says, you can have it all. Now, what's the point of all this? Jesus, in the infinite redemptive plan of God, is going to assume the crown of king of the world, but he's only going to do so through suffering and death. He's going to have to be rejected. He's going to have to be beaten. (coughs) He's going to have to be mocked. He's going to have to be murdered. Now pay attention to the temptation of the enemy. Hey, Jesus, take the kingdoms of the world without the suffering. Now listen, this is what we want. I want all the good of humanity without all of the pain of humanity. I want the kingdoms, right? I don't want the crucifixion. I want the joys of life, but I don't want the pains of life. I want the blessings and the rights and the privileges and the enjoyments of all things that are humanity. But I do not want the wounding. I do not want the rejection. I do not want the betrayal. I do not want the letdown. I want all of the crowns, but I want none of the crosses. And I'm all in on this. He offers this to me regardless of the way that he phrases it. I'm in. I've already bit. Hook, line and sinker. I'm in. And Jesus says no. I will assume the crown, but I will not avoid the suffering and so this temptation is not just take the kingdoms of this world this temptation is to refuse to trust the father to play life by his own rules and to want what we all want the beauties the joys the privileges the benefits of life without pain without suffering without rejection without hardships it is a shortcut that he is being offered it is a bypass He offers him all of the good of humanity with none of the bad, none of the suffering, none of the rejection by those whom he would come to save. Listen, and Jesus, what he does is he sees that this is a temptation to reject the father's will and to worship somebody other than the father. He says this in verse number 10, be gone, Satan. These are his harshest words. Be gone, get away, for it is written, you shall worship worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Now here's the thing. Jesus sees worship as more than a couple songs we sing at the beginning of church, right? He sees this as a way that we live and as a way that we obey. And he uses scripture again, rightly and properly to resist the tempter. And now notice what happens in verse 11. Then the devil did what? He left. He bailed. Let's put it this way. He lost. He lost. Right? And he left. Now, he's not done. He comes back. Okay? As a matter of fact, Jesus' whole life, if we do understand the scripture, is a life of continual trial and temptation. But we understand that at least at this point, the devil left him. And notice what it says here. Behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. You know what that means for us? That means that this was very real, that this was not easy. We get kind of this picture. Well, he was God, right? He refused to play the God card here. This was excruciating. His body literally felt like like he had fasted for 40 days. Can you imagine what it would be like to fast 40 days? I'm not fasting for four hours. I'm about to eat as soon as I'm done, Right. I mean, just think about this. Can you imagine what Rick did some Googling? Because Rick is a Google ninja. And he looked and like at the end of 40 days, your body begins to turn against itself when you fast. I don't know. I believe there's, there's obviously some spiritual things to this and some supporting by the spirit of God and some supernatural things that I don't understand. But here's what I do know. This was real. And we are meant to understand. Please hear this that Jesus did not defeat the enemy as God in this wilderness. Please hear me. He defeated him as a spirit-filled man. 100% man. He didn't use his divinity, right? When you could pull that strength card, when you can pull, I can make stones to bread. Matter of fact, I can make more than bread. I can make steak. I can make steak and chocolate milk. If, if I had one last meal, it would be steak and chocolate milk. Don't argue with they don't go together. I don't believe you. They do go together. Chocolate milk goes with everything. Jesus said so. I'm going to apologize and repent for that in just a minute, okay? I promise. But the reality is this, is that Jesus could have done whatever he wanted to, and the reality is he did it. Why didn't he? Because he was not there to beat Satan as God. He could do that any time, any day, any week. He was there to defeat Satan as humanity. As man, as me. So we're, here we have this narrative of Christ who lives in this self-renouncing love and obedience to his Father, who lives in this humble trust that his Father is good and faithful and true. This Jesus who lives in this undaunted hope that his Father's will is always the best will. That regardless of what my conditions say, regardless of what my flesh says, regardless of what the enemy says, loyalty and allegiance to my father's will are always in my best interest. And in faithfulness and obedience, Jesus conquers evil itself, not by divine power, but in spirit filled humanity. And I think this is what we're supposed to understand in this text is that he did not defeat our enemy as God, but he did so as man. So let me give you a couple of the theological implications. Let's go over to Hebrews chapter two. Let me give you a couple of the things that why this is important for us, okay? Um, The book of Hebrews is written to Hebrew Christians, but they are Christians nonetheless, okay? So this text, while written to a specific group of people, And it is written in a specific way. It's written in a language that they would understand if they would be familiar with, okay? It is also a language that will be hard for us in some places to understand and to be familiar with. That's why the authors of the New Testament will take these same principles and apply them not just to Hebrew Christians, but also to Gentile Christians. He'll just use different language in doing so because he's using a language that makes sense. When Pastor Nathan referenced Hamilton the other day, it didn't make any sense to me didn't make any sense to me. I tried to watch Hamilton. I don't have the stamina or the maturity level to do that. My sons apparently do. Okay, And so he spoke something that their language understood and my language didn't. And so what we're about to read here to Hebrew Christians is written in a language that Hebrew Christians would have understood. But it's not just Hebrew promises. These are promises for all of his children. So now I want you to come down to verse number 14 of Hebrews chapter 2. Okay, this whole context is about Jesus being one with humanity. Okay, one with his brothers. I just about tried to scroll in my physical Bible. Did you see that? Anybody see that? I tried. I tried. When all I had to do was look to the next page. Okay, hey, some of us are just slow. Don't, don't hold that against us. Okay, verse 14. Since therefore children share in flesh and blood. How many of you share in flesh and blood? All of us. It means you're human, right? He, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things. That means he took on flesh and blood. We're talking, right, about his humanity. Why did he do that? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. In other words, Jesus' humanity was absolutely necessary to the redemptive plan of God. In order for the devil, the evil one, to be defeated, Jesus had to take on human flesh. Now verse 15, and and deliver all those who through their fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's humanity. Therefore he had, notice the words in verse 17, he had to be made like his brethren. I'm quoting King James English, sorry. He had to be made like his brothers. It means this, that it was necessary. It was fitting. It was the proper thing. It was the will of God for him to be made like you. To be made like me, not to be kind of human, but to enter fully into the human experience. Follow with me, okay? Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers. What's the next phrase? In every respect, In other words, Jesus did not hold out any part of humanity from his experience. He entered into it absolutely as fully as you and I are human. Okay? So that he did this. Why? So that he might become a merciful. Merciful is to us. So that he might be merciful to us. But so that he might become a merciful, and what's the next word? Faithful. That's to God. It means he did exactly what the will of the Father was for him. So he is saying, I'm going to be obedient to my Father, and I'm going to be merciful to my brothers. Humanity. Okay? that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation means payment. In other words, he is going to be human. He is going to take on flesh and blood. He is going to die a horrible death so that he can be merciful to me, faithful to God, and so that he can pay for sin fully and finally forever. Okay? Now watch what he says in verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, Notice it wasn't that he suffered in giving in to temptation. Okay? He suffered in his temptation. CS Lewis does a brilliant job of this where he talks about how that it is not giving in to temptation that makes temptation harder. Right? So, temptation when you give into it there's kind of this relief, right? So if you've got a lead foot like me, we've talked about this before, right? If you get on the highway and somebody's driving slow and you're trying to do the godly thing and not race everywhere you're going, I don't really know that that's godly, but it feels like I should say that in this setting, okay? But you just want to go like fast everywhere. And the fact that people are on the highway and they drive 45 miles an hour, that's for the side streets, people, okay? The highway is for the highway. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. If you drive 45, we can, can discuss later, okay? But when I get on the highway and I want to go fast and I'm sitting here feeling like the spirit of God, the silly dude, is convicting me not to cut everybody off and run around everybody. The most painful thing I can do is to stay in the slow lane. The most gratifying thing I can do is to get out of the slow lane and get in the fast lane. So it is in resisting temptation that we find temptation the hardest. When you give into it, there's sort of a relief. Like if you've ever done any kind of fasting and you're like, man, I'm gonna make it three more days. Three o'clock comes like, forget that three more days. I'll still communion at this point, right? And so you feed yourself and you just feel this kind of sense of relief because giving into temptation brings relief to that temptation in a way. And the Bible tells us that Jesus suffered when tempted, not when giving in. So he feels it more deeply even than we do because he doesn't give in, right? So in some measure by him refusing to use his powers, he refuses to give into this temptation and he fills the depth of our temptation. When he himself has suffered, when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now you need to understand this. This is all about Jesus taking on humanity so that he could defeat the power of the devil. Not as God, but as man. This is deeply theological. If you feel faint memories of the temptation in the garden or you're feeling temptation the temptation of Israelites in the desert that's because we're supposed to make those connections Jesus is succeeding where humanity has failed right in Genesis chapter 3 man was tempted to be like God in Matthew chapter 4 Jesus is tempted to be like man do you really want to be like man if you don't have to right? And they're tempted with fruit in the garden and food in the garden. He's tempted with food in the desert, right? We're supposed to make these parallels because here's what Adam did. Adam represented us. It's called federal headship. If you really want to be smart, just go tell somebody, hey, you ever heard about federal headship? And then just walk away from the conversation. Don't try to finish it. Okay, it's just this big theological term that means Adam represented humanity. You ever heard the verse that said, by one man, sin entered into the world, and so death came upon all men for all men of sin. That means Adam represented us. The Bible calls Jesus not the second Adam. That's what we call him. We call him the last Adam. You know why? Because there won't be a third. Sit in that and rejoice for just a moment. We're not doing this again. Jesus won so decisively that we're not doing this again. Okay? And so he won not as God. You have to understand this. He won as a federal head, meaning he represented us. Here's what that means. Every time you have failed, he didn't. And every time he succeeded, that is now credited to my account as if, as if I lived that life, but I didn't live that life. He lived that life and he gave it to me. That's how real this is. Jesus didn't just whoop the enemy for me. He did it as me, my representative, my head, my brother, my savior, my redeemer. And so this is deeply, profoundly theological in the redemptive plan of God that he must Defeat the enemy as man. It is absolutely vital that Jesus humbly and completely identify with humanity to actually live a real human life. Not kind of human, but completely human as our representative in all things. And Jesus conquered the relentless enemy that plagues our soul. And his victory in the wilderness, in the desert, makes his victory at the cross possible. If he doesn't win in the desert, then he has to pay for his own sin, and he can't afford to pay for mine. But because he wins in the desert, he is now able to deal the death blow at Calvary. And listen, my friend, that blow has been dealt. This battle has already been decided. It is not over. I wish it was over. I'm tired of the battle some days, but it's not over. But I will tell you, friend, it is won. And there's no one going back on this one. Jesus won decisively. So there's this theological ramifications. There are practical implications here. Just think about this. If Jesus defeats the enemy as a man, rather than using divine powers, why would he do that? Because I don't have divine powers. Some of you, I figured you would amen that. But okay. Jesus defeated the enemy in a way that I could use to defeat the enemy. He used real life stuff rather because he's my example. He didn't just resist it for me. You have to know this. He teaches me how to resist the devil. Do you know that the Bible says resist the devil and he will flee from you? It doesn't say resist temptation, by the way. It says run from temptation. Run. Run. Don't hang out. Don't think about it. Don't wrestle it. You're outmatched. Okay? Run does say, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Notice how Jesus did this. Jesus used outward help to strengthen his inner man. Prayer, fasting, the scripture. He said, well, he knew the scripture. He wrote the scripture, right? All of these texts are taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6 through 8. I kind of get the impression that Jesus was actually meditating on Deuteronomy 6 through 8 during these 40 days in the wilderness. I can't prove that, Okay. But we do know that Jesus didn't just go off some knowledge of being the author. We do know that he learned and he was taught by the Father and by the Spirit. And he spent time in the scriptures understanding them. And so what Jesus did is the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, weren't just a book on his shelf. They were a life-giving, powerful force that taught him how to think, how to feel, how to live, how to believe. And so he would use the scriptures, he would use prayer, he would use fasting. And so when his flesh is incredibly weak, at the end of 40 days of fasting, his spirit is incredibly strong. And Satan doesn't know who he's messing with. Because he spent all of his time communing with his father. By 40 days, you are now in a habit of telling your flesh no. No. It's easier to tell your flesh no. At that point, I would think, I don't know, I've never done it. But if you've developed some practice, right? If you've developed some practice of resisting, then resisting becomes easier. This is the way this works. And Jesus used these means to defeat the enemy. Fasting and the word and prayer. And here's what we have to ask ourselves. Did he do that by accident? Or did he do that so that we would know that if we literally want to win, we actually have to do some of these things? I think we forget sometimes, right? Because it's our spiritual life, right? But our spiritual life is very spiritual, but that doesn't mean it isn't intensely practical. There are things we have to do. There are practices that we should be engaged in. If Jesus was engaged in the scripture, then we should be engaged in the scripture. What would it mean, my friend, if that the likelihood of my victory depended upon my understanding and knowledge and use of this book? How likely would my victory be? This is not a guilt trip. This is serious. We ought to think about this. Have you ever wondered why you lost? Have you ever wondered why you didn't resist or why you have given in? Now listen, it doesn't mean that you can't get in this book and still not give in because you will. But it does mean that the more you're in this and the more you use this well, the stronger your spirit is. The more that we pray, the stronger that our spirit is. The more that we fast and do these spiritual disciplines, they are real. And listen, if we refuse those things, then we can't expect to be strong in the heat of battle just can't do that because these are real things that are expected of us. Jesus used outward helps as part of his spiritual life. And to think that we can live like Jesus in the game and not practice like him in the day to day is foolish on our part, right? So, I mean, everybody wanted to play like Michael Jordan when I was growing up. Nobody wanted to practice like Michael Jordan. We just wanted to hit the shots that he hit in the game. Here's the reality. The reason why he hit the shots in the game that he hit was because he practiced the way that he practiced. True of any great athlete or whatever you want to talk about. Great authors write well. Do you know why they write well? Because they write well. They practice. It's practice. It's practice. We've kind of divorced practice from Christianity. I get in the middle of temptation and I just expect something supernatural to happen. Listen, my friend, there are things that we can do It is spiritual, yes. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But it is also practical. And if we're not using the means that God has given us to strengthen our spirit, then we can't expect to be strong in spirit. Those two don't work. And so Jesus does this not just as me, but he does this for me in setting me an example and showing me how to live faithfully and how to resist temptation I train myself towards godliness. Now in Hebrews four, and I'm, I'm going to land on this. In Hebrews four in verse fourteen. This this temptation of Jesus, what I think is just explained, in perhaps what is the most profound and beautiful way. We talked a little bit about Hebrews chapter two, but this kind of unpacks what he said in Hebrews chapter two. So look in verse fourteen. Hebrews chapter four. So then we have a great high priest. Again, this is Hebrew language. Something they would have understand very well. Understood very well. It says, we have this great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Because we have this, he says, let us hold fast our confession. It means don't give up. It means don't throw in the towel, right? Now notice the next word in verse 15. Four, Okay. That means what I'm telling you in verse 14, here's the reason for it. Okay? For we do not have a high priest who is what? Unable to what? Sympathize. sympathize. You know what the word sympathy means? To sympathize? It means to feel the pain of another. It means literally to feel with. So it's as if his pain felt in my heart. You ever had an injury? And you've seen that same injury going by somebody else and you thought to yourself, ooh, know what that feels like, right? You broke a shoulder or something like that and somebody else broke a, You were like, oh, mom's talking around. You guys, mom's sitting around talking about having babies and stuff. And us dads are going, yeah, man, we really bore the pain of all that. I don't know what you're talking about, right? Just kidding, okay? And so you guys have this kind of common bond and you know what that feeling is like, right? There is this to feel with. And so what he, the author of Hebrews here is telling us is he's telling us this, is that he says it, he states it in a negative way. We do not have a priest who is unable to feel, to sympathize with our weakness. So what that means, if that's true in the negative, what's true in the positive is this, is that we do have a high priest who can feel. Listen to me, you must hear this, that we are to understand that Jesus doesn't just know it, that he feels it. That my pain pains him as if my pain is felt in his heart, as if my pain were his very own. That's what it means to sympathize with. And what he's telling us here is this, is that because Jesus walked fully into and through his humanity, he is now able to feel with us. My pain is now felt as his, as his pain, not in a way that pulls from his deity, but in a way that brings him close to me in a way that brings him into familiarity with me. Notice what he says here, okay? We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but who in, again, here's this phrase, in every respect, every way possible, he was tempted like as we are. We must press into that phrase, that he was tempted in every way that we are. Fills the depth of all of it just like we do. Now we must also press into the next phrase. What's it say? Yet with out sin so he presses into it and he feels it and he knows it and he's able to understand it and now notice what verse 16 says because it's also flowing from 15 let us then with confidence draw near to the what to the throne of grace it is a throne that is characterized not by wrath not by justice but by grace doesn't mean all those other things don't exist, but it means that his throne is characterized by grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And the phrase time of need there means this, that he, it's a perfectly timed help. It couldn't have came at a better time. When you read in in chapter 2 and verse number 18 that he's able to help those who are tempted, the word literally means to run to the rescue of, to run to the cry of. It doesn't mean just he lends a hand. It means that when you're hurting and when you're feeling it and when your back's against the wall and the environmental conditions are closing in, when you feel like throwing in the towel, it means that Jesus knows what that feels like as if your pain was his pain. He has entered so fully into humanity that he is no stranger to it, that he is not distant from it, that he didn't just throw you a lifeline. Listen, brothers and sisters, Jesus didn't throw us a lifeline. Jesus jumped into the pit with me, put me on his back and carried me out. This is a different kind of help altogether, and we must understand this. We must feel this, that when Jesus could have resisted instead, or could have given in instead, he resisted, and in doing so, he becomes my rescuer in my temptation, and his heart is drawn toward me in the depths of my struggle, in the depths of my pain, not just in my temptation, but his heart is even drawn towards me when I don't resist in my temptation. Please do not miss this, that he so completely immersed himself into the human experience that his heart is ever towards us. This is so incredible because when life presses in on me and I want to throw in the towel, when I'm wrestling with my questions and my doubts, when my flesh is at its weakest and most vulnerable, when my conditions aren't favorable to following him, what it tells me is this, is that I am not alone. When my Savior has entered into that and drawn close to me, even in my rebellious heart, even in my questioning heart, even when I want to throw in the towel, he's not standing off at a distance, looking with judgmental eyes. He's pulling close and pulling me in and saying, Kevin, I'm still here. And You know what felt isolation is? I'm not talking about isolation. Everybody knows what isolation is, right? We've been battling COVID for a long time, right? And so you know what it's like to go into your house and have to shut the doors and not be able to interact with people physically and things like that. But felt isolation is different from real isolation. You can feel isolated when everybody's around. Matter of fact, if I was a gambling man, I'd put money on the fact that there's probably somebody in this room right now who feels severely isolated in the presence of a ton of people. But listen, when life presses in on you, and please just shake your head like you know what I'm talking about. When life presses in on you, when it hurts. I mean, I'm not, I'm not talking about when you, when you get a paper cut. I'm talking about when it hurts. When it lets you down, when the questions are more than the answers, and when the feelings of doubt are stronger than the feelings of faith, when you feel like throwing in the towel and life itself is collapsing in on you, I'm talking about those moments when it's hard. What happens when life is hard is we feel isolated, even if we're not isolated. And it closes in on us and we feel like it's got a death grip on us and we feel like it's got a noose around our neck and it's never gonna let us go and it's going to destroy us and ruin us. And in Hebrews chapter four, in Matthew chapter four, the Bible corrects that felt isolation and says, no, you are not alone. I am here. I have entered into this so fully and willingly and joyfully that I am with you and I'm able to give you grace and mercy and help. All of it, I can fix it. I can forgive it. I can heal it. I can restore it. There is nothing, no chain that I cannot break. I am with you. You are not alone. Because I've entered. I've come into this, not from a distance, but side by side. Here's why this is good. Jesus suffered being tempted so that he could be drawn to me and I suffer being tempted so that I'll run to him because nobody knows how to do this better. Let's stand together. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, desert moments are real, and we know that all too well. We are no stranger to moments that are hard, that are difficult, that don't make sense. We're no stranger to moments. Not only do we question whether to believe or not, we question whether we even want to believe or not. We are no stranger to any of these moments, to any of these pains, to any of these hurts. But Lord Jesus, neither are you. And we praise you today because you are not a stranger to our humanity, to our frailty, And because you have so fully immersed yourself into this condition, you are now a merciful and faithful high priest. And that your throne is now grace and we may come without faking it or without filtering it, without pretending to be like something that we are not, but in all of our rawness and fullness and brokenness, we can come boldly and find mercy and grace and immediate help in time of need. Oh, do not let us waste desert moments. Do not let us waste moments that should drive us to you, thinking that we should be scared of you and afraid of you. But Father, let them ever push us towards you. Jesus, thank you for walking our road. Thank you for not remaining exempt. We praise you and we love you in Jesus' name. As we sing and as we come and prepare for time of communion,